Welcome to this BMJ podcast about COVID. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ. We're recording this on Tuesday, the 13th of April. As the shops open in the UK and England is heading to the beer gardens. The rollout of the vaccine programme has completed its first phase and second doses have been given to the most vulnerable people. And now the under 50s are even starting to get their first doses. To talk about this and whatever else is going on in the front line of care, I'm joined again by our usual panel, Helen Salisbury. Hello, I'm a GP at Oxford. Pathika. Hiya, um, consultant in diabetes from Portsmouth. And Matt Morgan. High intensive care doctor from Cardiff. Um, So we're recording this on Tuesday, as I said, and last night was the first day that shops and pubs were open and unsurprisingly we saw people flocking to shops and pubs. How's this uh, making you feel? Um, This is all about protecting the NHS. Do you think the NHS has been protected enough? Uh, Matt, maybe we'll start with you. Well, Wales has been different from other nations for a while, and there's one big difference at the minute that pubs are not open in Wales. So uh, there's still people having haircuts. There are lines at various shops, um, but there are no outdoor draft beers being pulled at the minute in Wales. So uh, so that's a big change. But, you know, it it certainly feels like in hospital for the first time in our (coughs) intensive care unit, we don't have patients in the COVID red zone. And that's been the first time I can remember. Doesn't mean there aren't ill patients with COVID in hospital. There are, it's just they're not in that particular area. So, you know, it does feel like the right time for this to be happening. Although, as ever, there's uncertainty. And I do think doing it step by step in a cautious manner is is definitely the way to go. Mm. And Helen, is it uh, making you think about changing your, uh, getting people into your practice now? Well, it was quite interesting yesterday. We woke up on this day of freedom to a blanket of snow. And you just think, you know, <laughs> has has the weather, you know, is there a pathetic fallacy going on? This Has the weather got something to say about opening up? But, um, I mean, at the moment, there's half of me thinking, particularly watching those scenes in Soho yesterday, we really, really need to hang on because there may be another wave coming <laughs> and feeling really quite insecure about it and another of me thinking part of me thinking it really is time to change back and to start allowing patients to book directly into face-to-face consultations uh the current system where people have a telephone consultation first and then if they need to be examined then they come down to the surgery is terribly inefficient and i don't think it's really what most patients want if they know they need to be examined why can't they just come um and the risk is with such low incidence in our city now, really quite low. Um, But we haven't made that change back. There's a feeling that we changed really quickly to start with, but the the going back is harder. Mm, Incremental change. And Partho, talking of those scenes in Soho, um, what did you you think of that? I mean, I'm reasonably relaxed about it. I'll be very honest. You know, I've been looking at all the data and I've given up trying to predict anything of what will happen, right? You can either sit back and have a very nihilistic mindset and go like, well, you know, another wave is coming. Let's just take a break when we get a chance. And as a healthcare worker, we'll get ready for the next one. There is that mindset. The other one is, well, the whole thing hinges on vaccine programs. Yes, we can worry about variants. We can talk about Brazil. We can now talk about India. 
but that's probably going to be a part of our life isn't it i mean you worry you worry all the time people also need to have an opening of their lives so and there's a big release factor for people mm. you know kids and teenagers the majority of people have gone out and you know i was born in this country and then i went back to india and came back but i've i've always been fascinated by this country's absolute fascination for a pub i mean it's amazing <laughs> i work with colleagues i mean it was like the pub opening was a bit like gaining independence or something i mean it was brilliant it was it was just amazing to see how much it meant to them and i and i don't say that in mockery i say that it is a big event for people mm. so when you do that you know uh, it will obviously unlock a lot of people to come out and enjoy that first beer and whatever um but you know i think the final thing i would say to that is that it's a narrative we have also built as a nation right it, it, you know we can't have it both ways we've said to people go and get your vaccine it's the way out we've also said we want to go with we have and i think the persistent message from government and all quarters have been isn't it fantastic and we have done really well with our vaccine strategy and the vaccine rollout so when we are unlocking people are not doing anything which is fundamentally against the rules they've stayed in when the rules were tight if we didn't want them to come out we should have just said sorry we're not opening anything till july or whatever now you've opened up you i'm sure much more cleverer people than me have factored that into their calculations or you would have thought so but there you are yeah. and the the message has always been uh this is about protecting the nhs and now everyone the, the government saying everyone over 50 who's vulnerable um has Absolutely. been protected, so it's not surprising. Uh, and I think that's important. You know, we locked down because of that, because the NHS was overwhelmed, because we want to protect our elderly. And most of the elderly and vulnerable actually have had two vaccines, right? If you go by that. And the NHS is, at the moment, as least hospital beds go, is free. So by that token, it's the right thing to do. So you can go around that argument one way or the other. And, you know, last night I was listening on TV uh, from, I think, Independent Sage, who said that we should push it back even further we can go around this circle forever um that that it's an incredibly tough decision and debate to have people need to also have their lives so what can you do the the other point that we shouldn't forget in all this is long covid um because it's just i mean we've been talking about it for ages um but actually i think the health sector only talked about it really recently uh and it is something that affects young people um, and I do think that that it might alter activities a little bit if people, it's not necessarily they should be scared of dying because young people probably, probably won't die from COVID, at least not very many of them. But a significant number will have their lives changed quite a lot for quite a long time if they get long COVID. So, so it, not that, that people shouldn't be going out but but they do need to be mindful of the risks other than the risks of death yeah i mean i think the best person to discuss that always was going is going to be nisreen so when she comes back i think we can pick that up a bit but i think you know as an endocrinologist uh it is with a slight tinge of how short was the expression uh bemused when i look at this debate because if you look at this we're talking about something which is post viral and the impact it has on people's lives right and how it impacts people so either we go to a zero COVID strategy where you never have COVID forever, which going by the rates around the world is going to be a mighty tough thing to do. But I think the, the thing that I, as an endocrinologist, I look at the number of referrals we have had in people who have genuinely struggled with things like chronic fatigue syndrome and all that, and which has been brushed away by the system saying that well, it's not really an issue. 
And here we are, you know, and because of the whole magnitude of it, it is a very difficult space to recover from. And the, the issue that Nisreen gets and the view she gets, a lot of it is because of a disbelief that this thing actually exists. And that's a big, big problem. Uh, it, it does exist. And Matt, um, we haven't talked really about uh, people coming out post-hospital and uh, uh, the long-term recovery that that might have as well. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. Intensive care has been quite late to the game of medium and long-term recovery. You know, some units have followed up patients for a long time doing this, but most units in the UK, their follow-up services, it's called, from critical illness, is relatively new. We've just started uh, one in Cardiff. I'm involved with that. In fact, I'm doing a clinic uh, this week on uh, following up people from intensive care, critically ill, and looking at the patients there yesterday, about half of them are patients with COVID and half not. And it is a fascinating glimpse into a world that we haven't seen before. You know, previously, follow-up for me was coming in on a Monday morning after looking after somebody and seeing the bed being empty. And that meant either they had died or they'd gone to the ward. You know, that mm. was follow-up. And that's not follow-up. You know, no wonder people get burnt out when you spend, you know, hours and hours talking to families and having complicated discussions and then not knowing what happens. So for me, intensive care follow-up clinic is burn-in. It's the opposite of burn-out. It's seeing people back to work. It's seeing people in their homes with their families. But it's also seeing hard things. You know, being proud as a team that you've done amazing things and saved people's lives. And then seeing people who are really struggling. You know, not just physically, but financially, emotionally, and everything else. So, um, yeah, I think it's really valuable. Uh, And, uh, you know, I don't know how other services do it. And people like Partha and others who've been involved with COVID, I wonder whether they see the other side of that. And if if they don't, perhaps there should be some way to expose that to them, um, which may be a way to address things like um, burnout, for, for lack of a better word. Well, you're, you're, you're doing a great job in selling general practice because we see what happens before, we see the illness and we see what happens afterwards. We maybe don't get the kind of acute, bit of really feeling that you're in the moment saving the life that you do in ITU but we do um we do get to see the whole story um Mm. particularly if you are lucky enough to stay in the same place for quite a long time it's great and you also do a lot of holding people's worries which is uh, a big thing in general practice at the moment with um, the government saying, you know, watch out for headaches after your AstraZeneca vaccination. Uh, Helen, has that been impacting uh, your practice yes. a lot? <laughs> yes, there are inevitably lots of people who are worried because one of the side effects of the vaccine, one of the totally expected side effects for many, many people is headache. Yeah, People feel rotten after they've had their vaccine. Not everybody, but most people have a sore arm, a lot of them feel fluey, they get a temperature and they get a headache. And for some people, that headache lasts more than just a couple of days. And there's this kind of interesting interaction between having a headache and being worried about having a headache and that making the headache go on longer because you're so worried because the relationship between anxiety and the physical muscle tension that causes and then the headache that comes because of that, um, you know, it, it, they're intricately, intricately related. Mm. Um, 
And so, yes, lots of people hearing the news about a headache that goes on for more than four days, they should be worried. They are worried and they're calling us. Uh, and then we have to decide whether we're worried uh, and who we're going to um, investigate further. And the one of the big issues is that um, although the very severe cases, you would expect there to be a neurological deficit. You would expect to find something. You can't, you can't, it's not something that's easy to exclude um, by saying, well, the, you know, the neurological examination was normal. I don't think they've got something going on. You, you just can't do that. Um, so what do we do? And I think A&E departments up and down the land have been flooded with people with headache. Um, you know, you can do a full blood count and look and see if the platelets are, are normal. But actually, if you're worried from the GP point of view, you're going to send them up and deciding who you're going to reassure and who you're going to send for further investigations is really difficult. I have to say it wasn't helped by the um, British Society for Neuroradiology, um, who, set, who published some guidelines which basically suggested anybody with a persistent headache should be have a CT scan um, and uh, I think it was pointed out to them that that's a very very large amount <laughs> of radiation going on there um, and they withdrew those guidelines quite quickly I mean I think <laughs> within the day uh, but it's it's a big big problem and you know the numbers of people who are actually likely to have a, a, a significant clot um, are actually very, very small. Um, but we just don't know who they are. Mm. And um, you know, this is coming halfway through our sort of vaccination rollout, Partha. Most of your patients will have had um, the, the vaccination already. Are, uh, you know, did you have, have you had any worries? Have you had any people coming back? And Yeah, so... We have, so we've had a little bit of a double-edged sword in the sense that we, because of the data and everything, and JCBI were quite great in working with us. So we had everybody with diabetes, right, above the age of 16 qualified, right? So, and I think we're one of the few, if not the only countries, which have provided every single person with diabetes in the country uh, a vaccine, right? Nobody else has done it. I mean, if you take Israel out, which have basically vaccinated everybody who moves then, you know, we are one of the few countries. So that's the advantage of the NHS, right? Because that's the way flu vaccines have worked. So it's a big, big plus there. The flip side of that has been there's been a truckload of also younger people who have had their first vaccine, right? Now, as whether it's luck or default or whatever, plenty of them have had the Pfizer. So that's been a big plus for us. There have been a fair few inquiries, and I've had to do a few posts and stuff, which have been around the AstraZeneca. So I've had my first one. What do I do now, right? Now, the, the story hit at the time when the majority of the young ones have already had it. So the message we have tried to sort of persistently put out is exactly that, is that if you haven't had one, go and have one. You'll be offered the uh, Pfizer. Uh, uh, but if you've had your uh, Pfizer first one, don't worry, take the second one. And the issue with AstraZeneca is if you haven't had problems first time around and X, Y, and Z. So we try to sort of hold about the headache thing. Uh, but there is that intersection of, oh, but... How, what what degree of headache? How much is a headache? And then you've got, but I've also got migraine. Is that the headache? Uh, so, but we've tried to handle it as much as possible. We've tried to explain the risks and a lot of the inquiries have come from young women who also on the pill. So that also helps when you try and explain that sort of risk factor. 
So it's not been as manic, but I suspect, as Helen mentioned, the brunt of that has gone to primary care. We fielded a fair few calls in the diabetes centre from type one young uh, children and young sort of, you know, the, in that age group, less than 30. But it's not been overwhelmingly swamped. We have tried to get as much information as possible out there. But um, but I, I and I don't know what the demographics, but I I I think, and I may be wrong, Helen, you can correct me. But the majority of calls have ironically approaches have been for people who are older than 30, not necessarily less than 30, which is slightly ironic because I was talking to any colleague who have said, yes, there are loads of people coming, but their risk is anyway quite low. They're about like in the 50s or 60s. And that's not the people we're worried about. Yes, because actually not very many people um, under, yeah. under 30 have been offered the vaccination yet. Um, so actually it's quite a small group. Uh, but it doesn't stop people saying oh. you know who in their 40s and 50s um coming forward and saying well i've got a headache should i be worried i mean and there, there is no biological thing that happens at the age of 30 that means that you're significantly <laughs> different and and I, I think you know people who say well i'm not under 30 but could it be but um yeah i think the narrative also hasn't helped you know the whole I think it just fed so nicely into the conspiracy machine. Listen, you know, if you if you want to build a theory of conspiracy, there's nothing better than this. You do this. And in all fairness, what I do not like on social media is a lot of non-experts passing opinions in such very blatant yes and no terms. And I, we, I and myself have been guilty of it in the past. And I've learned along the way in the pandemic of sometimes just keep shut. <laughs> just I don't understand how it's working. So let's not pass an opinion on this. But I think a lot of people, when this first happened, that, oh, this has happened AstraZeneca and Germany had held off on it, it was seen as a it's, a, it's a conspiracy of Europe against Britain. That's what it became. And I'll just ignore them. They're just being, you know, Europeans are being like that and all that. And then, you know, when you see things develop, you go like, well, actually, there was a science and they were just looking at the data and they were doing what exactly our MHRA and everybody else have done. So that hasn't helped, that narrative. And I think I always say to people, in your zest for politics, you should not sort of jump into, you should not bring your confirmation bias into every single thing that happened. And I think that's what also generates a lot of people where you clearly, you guys weren't right about that thing when you said it wasn't a problem. So how do you know it's not a problem if I'm 45? You know, and th that does not help. So that, there's a lesson there, but you know, that's just social media for you. Everybody's an expert. Yeah. Uh, and as, as um, uh, Mr. Gove said, who needs experts? So there we go. So where we are, where we are. Uh, talking of experts, um, there's still a lot of research going on in, in COVID. Uh, and Helen, you pointed out there was some new research about um, treatment that might prevent people actually going into hospital. Yes, this is from the principal trialists. Um, and they've been looking at treatments for patients with COVID at home. Um, and the thing that was published yesterday um or i think uh, i don't think the whole paper's come out yet but the results have come out which is about um uh, a drug called budesonide which is used routinely as a treatment for asthma so you take it as an inhaler and it appears that taking um two puffs of budesonide uh, morning and night does reduce the time it takes to recover from covid if you have COVID at home and there's some suggestion that it also makes it less likely for you to go into hospital although I'm not sure whether that actually um, uh, was proven um, but 
but this is really useful because it's a drug that we're used to using we we know about it's safe we use it you know every day in in, in general practice um, it's cheap it's really easily available um, and at the moment I don't have a lot of patients coming to me with newly diagnosed COVID because mostly um, we're on that recovery phase now but across the world this could really change things if there's a, a cheap and easily available drug that can um, make people get over COVID more quickly and who knows I, I mean there's lots of follow-up to be done if they get over it more quickly does it mean they're likely to be better further down the line and have less long COVID we don't know that but it's you know there's all sorts of things to build on with this drug and it kind of fits it fits with what we know from the use of steroids in hospital that actually um, inhaled steroids could be decimated is a steroid um, help out of hospital too so mm. it's, a, it's a it's a very exciting result I, I'm definitely not the first to think or, or say this but it, in wave one actually we were expecting people with copd and asthma to be coming in like a flu pandemic you know we're thinking the intensive care unit will be full of ventilated people who've got chronic respiratory disease anyway and it, and it wasn't and in fact we put a proposal in uh, for some big data analysis thinking that inhaled corticosteroids may be protective in developing severe covid and of course it didn't even get past uh, the first stage of uh, of that grant proposal but again you know this will be wonderful if it is it fits the steroid narrative it fits the cheap drugs we already know about mm. and of course steroids are the answer to everything and nothing in medicine in in, in many ways so yeah re really hope that this will uh, be impactful research great and um there is another bit of uh treatment update the who um updated their their living guidelines to uh to include ivermectin um and they're not suggesting that it should be rolled out but that research should should carry on um i just wondered if what your take on that was matt given uh, the controversy that's been swirling around that drug for yeah, so long it's it's very odd that this controversy you know there has been research been done on it there have been trials on it it has been discussed as arms in the recovery study and in the remap cap study you know all these things are happening and yes if there's uncertainty then you know more should be done on that just as more should be done on all of the other drugs you know there's nothing special about it um but it, it has got in the mindset that there's some withholding conspiracy you know it, if anything works we want to know and we want to use it and we have the trials to show that um you know people say you know it's it's big pharma who don't want this cheap drug well you can't get a cheaper drug than dexamethasone so if big pharma are involved in withholding things inhale steroids dexamethasone aspirin you know, you, you can't get more off patent and, and cheaper than that. So uh, there are a huge amount of treatments out there and we need to continue to investigate it. That That's absolutely right. Is there any more news about aspirin? Because I think last time we spoke, there was a suggestion that it's going to be the anti-clot drug of choice. Yeah, no, the, it's still a very muddy story about anticoagulation and at what point should we use it? To what degree should it be? heparin should it be antiplatelet agents still still very muddy in the water really but hopefully the analysis of, of many of these trials is in progress 
Um, I think because it's muddy, unlike things like dexamethasone, which was very unmuddy, uh, you know, I think it'll be more difficult and take more time to, to get the right answers for that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's, this is the problem right now and throughout the pandemic we have seen, is that people pick their issues to create camps on, right? And ivermectin and everything along the lines have been exactly that, because I want to say that that's the conspiracy. Now, it's ironic because, you know, in the diabetes world, we have seen that for ages. People pick data which they want to suit their argument. And I'll give you one example, not just related to diabetes, but in general, what's going on, the narrative that the UK has suffered a lot because we're a very obese population, right? Uh, if you look at it, then New Zealand and Australia have got a higher average BMI and more obesity than the UK. The best way to stop people dying is to not let the virus in and have public health measures. Not about, yes, of course, when you get an obesity, there's a higher risk. But I think the narrative then becomes all we need to do is make people uh, slimmer and we would have been fine. Well, that's nonsense. In that case, why do you think type 1 diabetes, which is not necessarily associated with obesity, has got such a higher risk? It's not as straightforward as binary. And again, I remember having this conversation after we did all the data analysis and said, well, actually, it looks like the best outcome is between the BMI range of actually 25 to 29, if not slightly higher. It's not that your BMI has 20 to 24 had a worse outcome because of the I2 admissions, et cetera, et cetera. But it was impossible to have the conversation. And you see the same thing with drugs. It's about like, well, you didn't use the drug because you wanted to stop us. But why would we want to stop the system from getting better. I, like anybody else, would like to go on holiday, see my parents, go out and have a normal life. I absolutely, honestly can tell you there is no incredible, you know, sadistic desire of myself to go to the wards and not do my diabetes work. <laughs> there is none. It doesn't exist in any of us. So I think this is what makes me quite bemused when you hear this conversation. It goes on on social media all the time, doesn't it? It says camps and it's angry. And you see some of the views people cop and you go like, goodness, man. I, I mean, come on, guys. Just, just you know, it, it's it's quite ironic how it goes I, on. I think I've said before that, you know, the world has something like 38 different kinds of plug. You know, we can't even decide mm. on a single electric plug as a global society. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the yeah. thought that something could be arranged like that in itself uh, mm. would be impossible, even if even if it were wanted. So, um, you know, th there are explanations to why things change, and that's because things are complex, things are uncertain, things change. And what science does is it responds to those things. Science isn't about certainties, it's about uncertainties. If there were certainties, I mean, there would be no point in having science. You know, it's there to try to answer questions that we don't know the answer to. I mean, think of the days of beta blocker and heart failure on a ward round. You'd be chucked out of a ward round and be sort of, you know, if you even dreamt or even thought of the word beta blocker in front of a cardiologist, those were the days. And nowadays, you know, it would be blasphemous not to even consider beta blockers. Science evolves. So, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. Now, it, it's... And as I said, you know, in the diabetes world, we see that all the time. You know, we get, you know, there's only one diet, Arthur, to, to sort out type 2 diabetes. Why are you not taking away everybody's pancakes and cakes and waffles? And that will solve the problem of the nation. And you go like, well, not everybody actually has waffles in the morning, I can assure you, because they can't afford even a bread. But there you go. But that's not the debate people want to hear. So. Talking of um, debates and uh, controversy, um, 
recently we had the publication of the Sewell report and we're seeing uh, more and more experts coming out saying this wasn't you know, what our data said about the link between um, racism and, and health outcomes. Um, and Partha, I, I just wondered, uh, coming to you on this, um, given what you've, you've talked about, the, uh, the sort of camp forming, uh, can you see that happening again here? Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting to see that sort of land. I mean, it's been universally panned, right? Apart from certain sectors who would, you know, I mean, certain right-wing papers which have had their views on it. But I think I have tried on this occasion, as I just alluded to earlier on in the podcast, to stay within my own zone, rather than passing a judgment on schooling and society, on which I don't have much experience, right? I've tried to look at the health section. I've tried to specifically look at the diabetes section. There is actually a diabetes section, right? And here is the irony. They've done a national report on diabetes in the UK. Uh, I have never heard of it. And I think I should. I'm like the national specialty advisor for diabetes. I've got access to, with NHS Digital, the most fantastic data sets that we have from primary care. And I was never asked. Uh, I went around the team in, in which, in, just to find out if we had been avoided. Nobody was asked either. So it's quite fascinating that they've got a diabetes section without involving anybody from NHS England uh, in the diabetes team. So that in itself, if they had, we could have done the data analysis for them. I'm not saying it's one way or the other, but we could have done it, right? With all the data set we have, we got 98% uptake from primary care, ethnicity, deprivation. I know some of the data. So for me, it's like, if that's what you've done with that section of the data, I have no idea what work you've done. Now you've got everybody coming out and saying, uh, I think yesterday or day before yesterday, some of the commissioners have come out and disowned it as well, which is, you know... It, it's just, uh, having said that, it feels a little bit like, uh, I don't know whether you recall, Kevin Fenton did a report uh, about the impact of COVID-19 on ethnic minority. And he was hung out to dry a little bit uh, for some time. People just stood by and let Kevin take the heat. Uh, and it, it feels a bit like that because these guys have done a report, right, wrong, whatever they've done. And they really haven't had much support after it. <laughs> so it's it's... So from my point of view, you know, it's been, all I can tell you is that we have had meetings within NHS England and stuff, and I haven't seen anybody who's come out and said that we're going to support this or feel that this is something we can take forward because, you know, ethnicity, et cetera, is a big thing for us. Uh, so we're going to take it forward. But as I said, you know, I think I've been fascinated. And someday I've looked at all the authors of the report and there are some doctors in there. And I would love to ask them if I ever saw them, how did you do a diabetes report without talking to the diabetes team of the NHS? I mean, how, how did you come up with that? Uh, and that? Because that is some feat to achieve. <laughs> that is some feat to achieve indeed. Well, at least you weren't named there, Partha, without having been asked, because that seems to be what's happened to quite a lot of other people, that they it looks like they were consulted indeed. and they're named on the report, but actually then they're saying, actually, no, sorry, I didn't have anything to do with this. Um, I, you know, I, it's... Yeah. It's so shameless. It really is. Um, and I think pretty much everybody thinks this is just rubbish, doesn't don't they? I mean, I have to admit, I have not read the report itself. I've only read reports of the report. But some of it, some of the, the particular lines which are managed to be both offensive and meaningless in the same phrase, the... the there's the something about going beyond uh, uh, depicting slavery as about profit and suffering. I mean, 
really, it's mind-boggling that people can put that sort of thing out into the um, into the public arena. It, it speaks of a of a, a just a lack of insight uh, that is is, is staggering. And Matt, I wondered if this was a place to mention that genomic um, study that's trying to look at sort of genetic um, predisposition beyond yeah. ethnicity. Yeah, that's right. So this is a study run out of the University of Edinburgh by a, a colleague intensive care consultant called uh, Ken Bailey, who's done some amazing work in, in genetics throughout his career. And this is a study that's basically looking at genetic variation and outcomes from COVID. It, it's not one of those genetic studies that you know goes on and on for years and years and doesn't come to a conclusion. It's already found targets, drug targets, already in its severely ill COVID cohort that it's been recruiting from intensive care units. In fact, the drug baricitinib, uh, which is used in rheumatoid, is a JAK inhibitor, is, is a drug for one of these targets that it's found. So not only is it found a drug target, but there is a drug there already made which does something that may be good, and that's now in trial. So, so that's great already. But what it's doing currently, and there's a call out actually for people over the age of 18 who had mild or asymptomatic COVID who live in the UK to donate uh, two teaspoons of blood to look at what makes them have had mild infection or asymptomatic infection compared with those who were critically ill. So it's a really important study and you're absolutely right. Uh, They particularly want uh, people uh, who are of black and Asian uh, ethnicity to contribute towards this uh, because they were the highest risk groups that we saw in, in critical care and there is a call out for these healthy volunteers. So if people do want to contribute towards that, go to the genomic website. Uh, I tweeted about it this morning as well and that will, will be really helpful actually. And why don't we uh, finish uh, kind of where we started talking about the changes to the way we were working. Matt, you wanted to uh, bring that up. Yeah, well, I, I just, I've been reading a lot of reports about, you know, is there going to be a return to office working? What are city centres going to be like? How have things changed? And I think we also have to remember in hospitals, as well as doctors and nurses and physios and everybody else, there is a whole raft, a whole team of people who are essential to the smooth running of services. And that includes, you know, in primary care, whether they're administrators, um, managers, uh, other service industry people who contribute. And I haven't seen questioning about how that should change in in the wake of the pandemic. And the answers are, I I don't know. You know, perhaps it shouldn't. Uh, Perhaps it should. Perhaps it could be more efficient in other ways. Perhaps being in the same building is really important for healthcare, regardless of whether you're an administrator, a coder, a doctor, a nurse or a physio. But uh, I'm pretty interested in that and what the landscape of life is going to look like over the next five years. That's really interesting about, you know, do people need to be there? Um, And you can see from employers' points of view, it's ever so much cheaper to have people at home if you don't have to provide them with a workspace. what you'd like to see, what I'd like to see, is people given the choice, if they could work from home, are they allowed to? Because that makes life easier for them. But if they could work from home, are they still allowed to come into the office and have all the, the social benefits that, they ha- that there are of actually working with other people? Um, 
can we be a bit more flexible than we were? I mean, clearly, practically, we can. We've learned that over the last year. Um, is that going to be in favour of work, work out in favour of the workers who then get to choose? Or actually, is it always going to be something imposed from above so that people are told either you absolutely have to come in when there may not be any need or conversely, no, you don't have a desk anymore? which I think can be really hard for, for quite a lot of people if actually going to work is, is quite a big bit of when they actually see people and talk to people. And, uh, you know, in medicine as well, you've talked, Helen, about the, the bringing people back into the, the surgery, but, you know, equally there could be mixed kind of models of remote consultation and in phase as well. Would you consider rejigging your surgery to, um, to do that? Absolutely. I think we used to have um, a majority of in-person consultations with a minority of phone consultations. And now that's flipped entirely. And we're doing a few video consults. I think we could probably do a bit more using video. It's not terribly good if you want to actually examine anything or see anything because the quality is not good enough for looking at rashes or bumps or whatever it is. Um, but I think it probably does have a role in some psychological consultation to be actually able to see your your patient and for them to see you. And I, I, I have a, a, a vision in the future of when the patient is given the choice, what sort of consultation would you like? Would you like a telephone consultation, a face-to-face -face, or a video consultation? Um, and sometimes they will pick the one that's not most appropriate. I mean, even way back when I had people who wanted a telephone consultation about a rash and I actually had to say, I'm really sorry, I, t I can't tell <laughs> what it is from that. But at the moment, there's a big push towards triage of GP consultations where the patient has to submit things on paper or online rather than on paper. Uh, and then somebody decides what it is the patient needs. So this patient needs to see this person or have a conversation with this other person. Um, I'd quite like to flip that and say, can we offer patients choice about and let hand to them what it, the, the decision about what it is they need? That may be seen by some of my colleagues as hopelessly idealistic um, and... Uh, belonging in a world where we have um, enough capacity to do what our patients want rather than us deciding what they need. Because I think the problem with, with doctors deciding what it is you need is that we don't always get it right. Yeah. I mean, we have sort of landed a little bit on our feet here in the diabetes world, to be honest. I mean, we would love to say that it was all planned, but it not, wasn't, if I'm very honest. You know, because of... So about 10 years ago, one of the best things I ever did in my career was sitting down with a, uh, an uh, ITU colleague and understanding the concept of annualized job plans. And that has been a blessing. And now most of our team is looking at the restructuring, because if you look at it, diabetes, one of the questions is, when do you really need to see a patient face-to-face, -face, really? Okay, if you've got foot problems, fair enough. Pregnancy, fair enough. But a lot of it is virtual. Right. Nowadays, we've got so much remote monitoring device flying around. Why do you need to see them face to face unless, you know, we do endocrinology? 
unless it's a new patient that you haven't seen, then most of it can be done. And a lot of in our department now, we are looking at saying, do you know what? There are a few days in the week I can do this from home. I cannot see why I need to come in. And I think it's important because it creates the space for a lot of other people in the department rather than that room's done because, you know, you can't have that sort of place. And we need to create that space for nursing colleagues or our trainees, for example, who don't always have dedicated rooms in departments and stuff. So, as I said, you know, from a, from a chronic disease perspective, these are really, you know, if the community wants to pick it up in a chronic disease specialty, you can do a lot of job planning and a lot of modeling whereby you don't have to go to work, you know, seven days a week or five days a week or whatever you do. Because I can only speak about as again, I'm not going to, you know, prejudge any other specialty, but diabetes, you know, I do it full on. I would always challenge people to say, that, give me, give me, give me, give me five examples why you need to see every single patient face to face. And the answer is you don't, you really don't. Lots of it. And I can tell you the type one patients love the fact, you know, especially younger patients, they love the fact that you can just talk to them on the phone or the video and you can have a look at their data and have a chat and it's good for them. So there's an opportunity here. So it's a question of which community picks up what, but it's going to be, as Helen mentioned, very difficult for for a lot of, it's about the expectation. What expectation are you creating? Are we going, does going back to normal mean that, uh, right, normal means everybody has to come back and see me again, just like it. So I think that will be the mm. big debate and big question. And Matt, uh, you might be sitting here slightly jealously because if there's one specialty where you can't work from home, it's... Uh, it's well, well actually that that's not true and i mentioned the follow-up clinic i'm doing this week i'm doing that virtually mm. and it means that i drop into people's own homes into their lives rather than getting them to come to the hospital where they had delirium and had worries about hallucinations coming back to the intensive care unit that they had procedures done on and you know that again the choice of that is remarkable and i think it adds actually dropping into someone's home rather than then come into your world especially for services like follow-up is great um just just to pick up on one thing partha said annualized job plans i couldn't imagine a, a life or intensive care in many ways without annualized job plans and what that means is it recognizes that life isn't a slow and steady monday to friday nine to five pace guess what the winter's really busy the summer generally isn't as busy although still busy some weeks are bad some weeks are quiet sometimes your work is bunched up but efficient sometimes you have longer stretches where you can do non-clinical work in long stretches the complicated thing is often the rotor i actually do the rotor for our department we've got 28 people on 15 different job plans with all kinds of requirements but I think the value you get out of doing that is huge. So, you know, that for people listening to this, thinking about what the future may look like, the word annualised job plans uh, may be a really powerful uh, motive to change. Well, there's something for people to go and read. Um, so my thanks there to Helen Salisbury, Partha Carr and Matt Morgan. The panel will be back in a couple of weeks with another update from the frontline. That'll be available on all the usual podcast platforms, so do subscribe there. We'll be back soon with more well-being, this time about shielding doctors returning to work, and some more big interviews. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>